We're looking again at Hebrews chapter 10. So please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. The text is Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. Verses 19 through 39 of Hebrews 10 forms a little bit of a bridge between the the large major section in the center of the book of Hebrews, then into Hebrews chapter 11. And the next time I have an opportunity with you, I'll look at the third paragraph of this bridge in this section. But tonight we're looking at verses 26 through 31, Hebrews chapter 10, Uh, Verses 26 through 31. Hear God's Word. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this Your Word. And we thank You that in this little passage of Scripture, we are given reason Uh, to persevere in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, We are given reason in that uh, if we fail to persevere and turn from Christ, judgment comes. Uh, But uh, if we do persevere and uh, uh, hang in there with Jesus Christ until the end, uh, there is blessing uh, that comes. And so we thank you that this is the case. And as we look into this text this evening, we pray that you will bless us to this end, that we will indeed persevere in the faith once for all delivered to us uh, through uh, your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The class at the seminary Uh, is called Care and Administration of the Local Church. And uh, pastor is smiling. Uh, He remembers the class. And uh, it was my privilege to uh, teach that class over a period of years. And uh, one of the questions that I often asked uh, the students, uh, the men in the class, was this. Uh, What uh, do you think is the most... Uh, important characteristic 
uh, of the pastor. Uh, what is the thing uh, in his life, uh, characterizing his life, uh, that would be most important as he carries out uh, his pastoral duties? And uh, I pose the same question to you this evening. Uh, what is it uh, that characterizes the Christian life and uh, is most important as far as the Christian life is concerned? Uh, well, in class, uh, students would say, well, uh, you need to love the uh, people of the congregation. I said, yes, that's true. It's very important to love uh, the people of the congregation. You, you need to have a servant's heart. Yes, uh, you need to have a servant's heart. Very important that uh, you have a servant's heart. And I would write all these on the board. We'd spend some time uh, in discussion. And then finally, I would say, okay, I'll give you my answer. What is the most important characteristic of the pastor? And what is one of the most important characteristics of the Christian life? Perseverance. Perseverance. And of course, in the title of the sermon, I've said, Persevere, Persevere, Persevere. Trying to emphasize that point. And uh, uh, this is the point I want you to get out of the sermon tonight. Uh, because I think our text leads us uh, to this very idea uh, that uh, we need to persevere in the faith. Uh, you and I, very important uh, that uh, you do so and uh, that I uh, do so. And for two basic reasons. That uh, if we fail and turn from Christ... Judgment comes. But if we do persevere and we uh, hang in there with Jesus Christ over the long haul, blessing comes. And we can give thanks uh, to God that uh, this is the case. So, persevere, persevere, persevere. Uh, This is the point. As we begin to look at this text, a little bit of background is probably helpful because the writer to the Hebrews has been exhorting those to whom he writes this letter or pens this sermon, as some would have it, that they need not, they ought not, they should not draw back from Christ. Uh, They should not draw back from Christ because uh, Jesus Christ uh, offers a better sacrifice. And in that He offers a better sacrifice than the sacrifices of the Old uh, Covenant, He uh, inaugurates a better covenant. And uh, in that He offers a better covenant, He's a better priest than the high priest of the old economy and of the Old Testament. And so, the people are urged to not draw back from their confession of faith in Christ. And in the previous paragraph that we looked at, verses 19 through 22, or 25, I should say, the writer exhorts us to draw near since Jesus Christ is so good 
And uh, He uh, lays before us this better covenant that we should draw near to God in faith and that we should hold fast to the confession of our hope and we should not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. But consider how to uh, exhort one another and encourage one another to love and uh, good deeds. And so the writer to the Hebrews is just working on this whole subject. And you can see that in the end, really what he's getting at is this whole idea of perseverance. And if you and I fail to persevere, if you turn back from Jesus Christ, it does not bode well for you and for me. Uh, verses 26 and 27. For if you, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no lo- there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of the truth has to do with that truth that surrounds Jesus Christ, uh, as I just gave it to you, uh, that He is the one who came into the world and uh, inaugurated a better covenant uh, based on a better sacrifice and uh, giving a better hope uh, based on better promises. I mean, <laughs> it, it just goes on and on. Better, better, better. This is what the writer to the Hebrews has been uh, pounding away at uh, over a series of chapters uh, in this book. And if we uh, turn back from Christ, if we willfully, if you and I willfully turn away from Jesus Christ, and uh, turn away from the church. This is what uh, the writer to the Hebrews is talking about. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You need to let that soak in uh, a little bit. Why would there uh, no longer remain a sacrifice for sins? Because Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. His sacrifice is the only sacrifice. Now, some would say, well, uh, that's too narrow. I, I, I'm branching out now. I'm uh, uh, learning some new things. And, uh, you know, and I've gotten some new things in school that have been very helpful. And uh, so I'm, I'm uh, backing away from Christ. Oh, careful, careful, careful. Christianity is narrow. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. Christianity is a narrow way. And so if you forsake the narrow way and forsake Jesus Christ, there is no other sacrifice available for sins. This is the point being made in verse 26. 
But the alternative is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And verse 31 ties in to that very same subject. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a terrifying thing. We had uh, the privilege in uh, morning worship here a couple of weeks ago of looking into Mark chapter 5 and uh, the story of Jesus delivering the demoniac. And the demons implored Jesus not to send them out of the country. And what they meant by that was that they knew that Jesus Christ had the capability of consigning them immediately to the pits of hell. And it terrified them. The thought of being consigned to the pits of hell terrified them. Imagine this now. Think about this. That the demons were terrified of the pits of hell and the judgments of hell. Uh, some would say, well, hell is not going to be that bad. Uh, I'd just as soon go to hell and be with my friends. Uh, there aren't going to be any friends in hell, dear ones. Everyone in that awful place hates one another with an infinite hatred. There are no friends in that place. Uh, you, may, you may remember uh, uh, the story that Jesus told about the, the, uh, the rich man and Lazarus and how the rich man, after he died, found himself in that awful place. And he cried out to Abraham. He could see Abraham afar off, across the chasm, far off. And he begged that just a drop of water might be placed on his tongue there was no one there in that awful place to give him that comfort of even a single drop of water. A terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversary. The writer to the Hebrews is quoting from Isaiah 26 and verse 11. And in Isaiah 26, uh, in that section of Isaiah, Isaiah is bearing down on things that occur in the last days, in the last times. It's what we call an eschatological portion in the prophet. And uh, so uh, this fire uh, that uh, the prophet refers to and that the writer to the Hebrews refers to here, the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries is the final conflagration of all things, the fire that will consume the adversaries of God. Now, uh, the writer to the Hebrews uh, emphasizes the point he's making here by drawing a contrast. And uh, the first part of the contrast is in verse 28, and the second part of the contrast is in uh, verse 29. 
Uh, and it's a contrast where he lays out uh, the lesser and then goes to the greater. It's kind of the idea. And uh, so he says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And uh, the emphasis here is on uh, the physical life. And if a person uh, is found to be guilty of a capital crime in the Old Testament economy, it takes two or three witnesses for that individual to be put to death. And this is the background of the text. And the writer to the Hebrews reminds us, he says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. There's no mercy in the law. You've broken the law, you die. That was the circumstance, that was the situation. And you might remember the story of the adulterous woman in the Gospel of John where Pharisees brought this adulterous woman to Jesus. And for them, there's no mercy under the law. So they came to Jesus and they said to Jesus, here's this adulterous woman. They threw her down on the ground before Jesus and gathered around and said, we caught her in the very act. Uh, well, you have to wonder about what was going on in that whole scene uh, when they caught her in the very act. Uh, but at any rate, uh, uh, as far as they were concerned, she was caught, uh, they were witnesses, uh, she should die. No mercy under the law. And of course, uh, uh, Jesus draws back and... Uh, he, he in, in the final analysis, says to the Pharisees, he, he uh, who is without sin casts the first stone. And one by one, they, they depart. And Jesus now, Jesus says to the woman, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. There's mercy with Jesus. There's mercy with Jesus. Come to Jesus. No mercy under the law. This is part of the point. And then he says in verse 29, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. How much severe a punishment. The idea of severer punishment here is eternal punishment. Eternal punishment. It, it, it used to be, I don't know if this is still the practice, and maybe some of you do know, it, it used to be that when, uh, in our legal system, when uh, someone was uh, condemned uh, to die, that uh, a priest or a minister was called uh, to their side uh, before they were uh, taken to the gallows, or to the electric chair, or whatever the form of punishment might be. 
to read to them the Word of God and to speak to them about Christ and to exhort them to repent of their sins and turn to Christ because eternal punishment awaited them when they departed this life. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? The point is that here's a person now who has come into the pale of the visible church and then they've turned away. Now, uh, such turning away is not irrevocable. Such turning away uh, is not something that cannot be remedied. Uh, We know this is the case because uh, we've witnessed in our own midst those who have come back to Christ. Praise be unto God that this is the case. But if individuals willfully and persistently trample underfoot the Son of God, if they take as it were that which was beloved and throw it into the dirt and trample, trample on it. See, this is what we do with things we despise. And you know children that do this sort of things. Maybe you've done this sort of thing yourself, that you've been angry and hateful and you've thrown something into the dirt and just trampled it to try and destroy it. You see, this is the idea. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? Regarded as common the blood of Jesus Christ that inaugurated a relationship with God and treated that blood as if it were, well, not any better than the blood I would shed or not any better than the blood that animals would shed, bulls and goats would shed, not any better than that, and would regard the covenant as something to be despised. Verse 10 of chapter 10 speaks of Uh, The same thing, if you look back at uh, chapter 10 and verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Uh, Look again at uh, verse 29. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? You see, those who genuinely come to Christ are set aside for the purposes of God by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, by His work on the cross. Set aside for the purposes of God by Him. But now, uh, the term sanctified it can have a couple of different meanings. All words have different shades of meaning. 
You, you look in the dictionary and you, you see uh, multiple meanings when you uh, look up a particular word. And the word sanctified can have different meanings. Uh, the word sanctified can have the meaning of actually being set aside uh, for the purposes of God in your heart. And the word sanctified can also uh, have to do with uh, being externally and formally set aside uh, uh, to God uh, by becoming, for example, the member of a congregation. And uh, you're outwardly and formally set aside from the world uh, by becoming the members of a church. And uh, this can happen where individuals who uh, take uh, their vows publicly, uh, as we are grateful to God, we saw this morning, uh, individuals take their vows uh, before us publicly, and we trust that uh, when they took their vows, uh, it was from the heart. But often when people uh, do this, it's uh, a formal uh, sort of thing. Uh, they know that in order to become the member of the church, you have to uh, stipulate certain things. And so they stand before the congregation and uh, they take those vows. And it may simply be an offering of the lips, but not an offering of the heart. And so they are sanctified outwardly. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? See, there's the third thing. And has insulted the Spirit of grace. When you insult the Spirit of grace, you... Uh, say something like, well, uh, uh, the Spirit's not a, really a person. Uh, I don't believe in the Trinity. Uh, uh, what the Bible speaks about uh, as the Spirit is just kind of a force. You know, the Star Wars kind of thing. The force be with you. And you can be on the good side of the force or you can be on the dark side of the force. It doesn't matter a whole lot actually in the end, but, but you disparage the work of the Spirit. Uh, uh, when I was a pastor in Sterling, Kansas, and we had the uh, Geneva Choir uh, there with us, uh, uh, they were in the, uh, the choir, the whole choir was in the uh, college class, which I was teaching. And uh, as was my uh, practice, uh, I asked the college uh, uh, kids that were there, what do you want to talk about? Uh, hand goes up right away. Unpardonable sin. I said, oh, man. <laughs> so, so I said, uh, anyone else have a question? <laughs> so the next hand that came uh, uh, rose was, why won't you speak about the unpardonable sin? <laughs> uh, so we talked about uh, the unpardonable sin, and I uh, attempted to unfold uh, passages of Scripture that had uh, to do with this. And uh, uh, when we got to the close of the class, one of the students uh, said, well, why is it that the 
Lord Jesus speaks about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as being unpardonable. But if you blaspheme the Son of God, or if you blaspheme God Himself, that's that's pardonable. What's up with this idea of the Holy Spirit? And to a lesser degree, we have this same idea in verse 29. The person who has insulted the Spirit of grace... I don't think that has to do with the unpardonable sin, but the same idea applies here. Why is the third thing the Spirit insulting the Spirit? Well, think about it, friends. Jesus Christ died on that cross long ago to pay the penalty due to you for your sins. How do you come to experience in a personal way, the work of Jesus Christ. By the application of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit applying the work of Christ to your heart as an individual and personally. And if you spurn the work of the Spirit, you spurn the very beginning works of God in applying the work of Jesus Christ to your heart. Now you're in trouble, you see. That's why the emphasis here on the Holy Spirit. And then the writer to the Hebrews goes on and says to those to whom he's writing, this is no mystery that I'm talking about. Uh, You know these things. Verse 30, uh, For we know Him who has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge His people. You know that this is true. And uh, it's an amazing thing as we uh, uh, begin to examine uh, this text uh, a little bit further. Uh, that this knowledge that uh, the writer to the Hebrews is speaking about is a personal knowledge that those to whom he is writing actually have with regard to God. We know, the writer to the Hebrews says. And of course, he is referring to uh, the idea that God will avenge those who sin against Him. God will do that. Uh, The writer to the Hebrews here is quoting from Deuteronomy 32. And uh, uh, that great song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, where Moses rehearses the uh, salvation that God brought to uh, the children of Israel and then warns the children of Israel, as they are on the verge of Jordan, ready to pass into the promised land, Moses warns them that when they get into the promised land, that they will forsake Him. And it's a troubling thing to contemplate that this is the case. And Moses says that when they forsake me, that he will avenge the wrongs uh, against Him 
Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And the Apostle Paul uses this very text in Romans to speak about the last judgment. And so again, we're back to that last judgment. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge His people. But there's consolation here in this text. For we know Him who said. The writer to the Hebrews says, but we know Him. And of course, Jesus says in John 17, Verse 3, this is eternal life. To know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. And the writer to the Hebrews says, we know Him. We know Him who says on one hand, Vengeance is mine. And in uh, verse 39, uh, uh, which is at the end of a a short uh, portion of consolation, the writer says, But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. We know Him. And we have faith to the preserving of the soul. And so there's reason, you see, to persevere. There's reason to persevere on two counts. First, failure to stick in there with Jesus Christ over the long haul, inevitably leads to judgment. But to persevere leads to blessing. What does Jesus say? He speaks of those who persevere to the end. And he says, those who persevere to the end will be saved. And this perseverance becomes a hallmark of the faith that Jesus Christ gives to His people. Persevere. 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 Jimmy Valvano was a basketball coach and in 1983 he left he led the North Carolina State Wolfpack to a very unlikely national championship A little less than 10 years later, 
he was diagnosed with cancer. And in 1993, he was uh, given the ESPY Award. You'll have to look that up. It's a, a, a sports award. He was given the ESPY Award for courage. And about two months before he died, he gave a very stirring speech to receive this award before sports commentators and sportscasters and the like. And at the end of that speech, he said, Never give up. Never, ever give up. And in biblical terms, you would put it this way. Persevere. 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 They that persevere to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You're good and gracious to us in every respect. And there's every reason for us who have confessed faith in Jesus Christ to be grateful to You and to hang in there with You to the very end of each of our mortal lives on this earth. And we know that there's good reason to do this because failure over the long haul results in judgment but perseverance to the end brings new light and those good words from You, well done, good and faithful servant, enter now into the joy of Your Lord. And so we pray, Father, that You will be pleased by Your grace to work this perseverance in us To your glory and honor, we ask it in the good name of Jesus Christ, who is the only Lord. Amen.